I always, I was just stuck that I was broken, that I felt broken. So I was broken and I just felt that to my core. And then this is basically saying, no, you're not what you believed you were your whole life. You're just different and that's okay. And that was really hard to accept. Welcome to And Then Everything Changed, a podcast about the pivotal moments in life and the decisions that define us. I'm your host, Ronit Plank. Today, I'm speaking with Jeanette Graham. Thank you for being here, Jeanette. Thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure to be here. Yes. And so you have a podcast entitled Excuse My ADHD. Yes. Um, And how long have you been running that? Just since August, I launched August 26th. And your your journey to ADHD discovery is a little bit different um, because for me and where I'm living in Seattle, there are so many parents who are becoming aware of their children's ADHD in second grade and third grade. And mm-hmm. your story is a little bit different. So can you talk about when you realized that you had ADHD? Yeah, absolutely. So like you said, it is a little bit different because I don't, well, one, I grew up in the late 80s, early 90s. So not so many people knew about it. And, you know, the ADHD stereotype is, you know, the kid that can't sit still, that's constantly getting up or interrupting or rude, over talking, harassing people, whatever. But that is the hyperactivity piece. There's so much more to ADHD than just that hyperactivity piece. And even I thought that's what it was until I was diagnosed. So all growing up, I just, I always felt different, but didn't know why. I never really fit in. School was really hard. I always got the, you know, you're not living up to your potential spiel that so many people with ADHD get that and always feeling like a failure. Do you have siblings? Yes, a younger brother and a younger sister. And did you get compared to them with your learning style and your behavior? I did. And my brother was always the golden child because he always did so good. But the thing with my siblings and I is we have such a big age gap. So I'm six years older than my brother and I'm 10 years older than my sister. Mm -hmm. So by the time my sister was in school, I was already out of the house. Now, I'm an older child, and I think in a lot of families, older children are sort of held to a higher standard. Mm -hmm. Um, Do do you feel like that came into play for you? No, I did. I absolutely did because I was the first. And I was, I guess, it's like you're the one that all the hopes and dreams are hung on, I guess. Yeah. (laughs) That you have to live up to this high potential and just be whatever idea of a child your parents or family has. And when you're not, it's a lot more difficult. And I think I had a lot of problems because of my impulsivity and my inattentiveness, which is what I have. I am inattentive type and it gets misdiagnosed a lot. And my parents were younger parents. So I also had, you know, one parent that worked during the day and one parent that worked at night. So it's not like they were 
really comparing me at the same time because they weren't there at the same time, except for on the weekends. Mm-hmm. And so it's hard to take care of and raise kids when you're doing that. But, you know, when you're living in almost poverty, there's that struggle and your parents have to work and they can't always pay that super close attention. And like I said, you know, back in the late eighties, nineties, I wasn't home all the time. I was out running around everywhere and I was doing okay in school. I made, you know, I didn't make great grades. I didn't make horrible grades. I didn't mediocre grades. So you were doing okay. Yeah. So how did you feel that you weren't matching up when it came to your parents? Well, because I was always told I wasn't living up to my potential. My parents would tell me how smart I was, but that I was always falling short in some way because I wasn't trying or I wasn't trying hard enough or I wasn't doing everything I could. I wasn't studying hard enough. I wasn't doing all of these things that I should have been doing because I was so smart, but my grades weren't reflecting it and my report cards weren't reflecting it because my teachers would say I was chatty or I wasn't completing work or I was making all of these mistakes, but they knew I could do it. So it was just this constant, you're better than this, but why aren't you better than this? I guess. And And do you, do you have a moment or do you have, do you recall a specific time when you felt very acutely the kind of dissonance between what people were expecting of you and what you were doing and the frustration of that? The biggest thing for me growing up where I knew that it was just something was just so different was really math. So anytime my dad and I would sit down and he would try and help me with math homework he would try and explain things to me. He's an engineer. So he has that engineer's mind and is crazy good with math, all kinds of calculus, you know, whatever. I could never understand it, no matter how many ways it was explained to me. It never made sense to me. My friends could do it. My brother could do it. I couldn't do it. I couldn't understand it. And You know, I come to find out at 37 because I have a learning disability. I have dyscalculia, which, you know, learning disabilities about 50% of the time follow as a comorbidity to ADHD. So dyslexia, dyscalculia, those are very prevalent in people with ADHD. So those are sort of the matching brain differences. Right. Mm -hmm. And so... The math is where I always knew that there was something different about the way my brain worked the most. Because with all other subjects, science specifically, I did good at. It was just math. I could never understand it. I couldn't memorize my times tables like everybody else could. Fractions to this day are my worst nightmare. (laughs) Long division, uh, quadratic equations, Pythagorean theorem, finding area, all of those things are so hard. I can't remember formulas in order. I flip numbers 
get decimal points wrong, make silly, stupid mistakes with positive and negative signs that I always just thought were test-taking anxiety. Because if I tried hard and long enough in the homework, I could usually work it backwards Mm -hmm. from the answer to do the work to get the problem. But when it came to doing it in class or in a test, I could, my brain froze and I could never remember anything. I still to this day, I count on my fingers. (laughs) Your father had a brain for math and How did homework go with your mother if she ever helped? She was never home to help. My mom worked second shift. So homework was usually done during the week and she was working. Did your father get frustrated with you? So frustrated. He couldn't understand why I couldn't understand the homework. And he would try and explain it to me you know, the way he learned it, the way the book said, and then we would fight over it. And it usually ended up with me crying. Mm -hmm. So I would imagine that it wasn't something you looked forward to doing. Absolutely not. I hated math. And still, even to this day, I have a big issue with math. What else made you feel different as a kid? So I'm, I'm hearing that you had a difference in your learning style and frustration Mm -hmm. there because you were a smart kid, but things weren't matching up exactly. Well, you know, in school, you get homework and you have to study. My friends would all have like, talk about study groups and how they would study this way or that way. I couldn't do it. I could sit down and two seconds later, I'm looking at the pattern in the wall or I'm staring out the window I go back to my book. I have to read a paragraph five times just to even understand what the and remember what the paragraph said. If it didn't interest me, I couldn't do it. But then at the same time, I can't sit there and read a paragraph in a textbook, but I could read a book that I liked for an entire day nonstop. That must be very confusing. Well, and what I've learned is that that's ADHD in a nutshell. It is nothing if not contradiction itself because you have this hyper focus element and so I could read a book that I liked I could from the moment I woke up until the time I went to bed I would not eat food because I wouldn't get hungry I would hear my brother and sister yelling wouldn't care my parents would come check on me I just kind of uh, yeah okay I'd go to the bathroom but that would be it. And that would be from morning to night. And that's not normal. Yeah. But that's kind of what hyper-focus does. And then, you know, my friends would all be in these like really tight-knit groups and I never felt like I fit in. Like I would, I'd be friends with people, but I never felt like I had that same connection or relationship to them that they had with other friends. And then I had a hard time keeping friends. So like I got in some pretty serious fights where I had things thrown at me. I was hit. Police had to come. Um, How old were you when that happened? uh, I don't remember how old exactly. I was in middle school and it was probably partially my fault because I probably instigated something because I, with the impulsivity comes just things spewing out of my mouth that I shouldn't say sometimes, but it's still not an excuse. But you know, when you have ADHD, you have 
that's one of the problems a lot of people have is with relationships. With these kids that you didn't fit in with, do you feel that they were very different from you? I felt like I was different. Like there, I always felt like I was broken somehow and that I was the different one, that everybody else was just, that's how they, I was supposed to be and I could never get there. Mm-hmm. So it's, you know, even when you have friends, it's still lonely because I just didn't feel right. I felt different and off, I guess, if that makes any sense. Right. So that was your life at school. And then when you're in your home, did you feel that you belonged there? I kept myself a lot. I was very isolating all through high school, middle school. I would stay in my room a lot and really didn't socialize with anybody, even in the house. And when we would get together with family, I got teased quite a bit because I was very sensitive and very emotional. So if somebody would tease me or something, it would just send me off to crying hysterics. But that's another part of it is rejection sensitive dysphoria. It's where you perceive and feel rejection much more intensely and acutely than say neurotypical people. Mm-hmm. So then uh, the picture I'm getting is not feeling like you belonged at school necessarily or with a group of friends in an unselfconscious way. And then at home, possibly feeling that way as well. Yeah. So can you talk a little bit about when you realized that you had ADHD and, and what the breaking point was in your own uh, family that you've created as an adult? Yeah. So... You know, like I said, with an attentive type, a lot of times, especially in women, it's misdiagnosed. Um, It will show up as depression or anxiety or PTSD. Something like that is usually diagnosed first. So I was diagnosed with depression and PTSD. Um, Then several years later, after having kids and doing some pretty significant moves across country and back. I think stress played a really big role in everything. We had twins and at three months old, we moved from Kentucky to Pennsylvania for my husband's job. And then I had a new job at the same time. So there was a lot of stress there. I had started getting in car accidents about once a year. So we were there for about two and a half years. And then we moved back to Kentucky to be closer to family because his job allowed for it. And when we moved back with at that point, I'd had an accident in Philadelphia and two in Kentucky. They were minor fender benders. um, And that was kind of it for my husband. He was not happy. But shortly before that, he had had watched a testimonial of somebody with ADHD and he said that listening to that testimonial was like he was talking to me or like I was the one talking to him about my life. And so he was the one that after that last car accident pretty much said, you have ADHD and if you don't get tested, then that's it. We're done. Meaning when you say we're done, 
the relationship's done getting in divorce because he was that adamant that I had a problem and he was afraid because I have a problem with follow-up on things. That's another problem I have is, you know, following up and um, forgetting he did, he wanted it me to know exactly how important this was and to follow through with it. And so I did. And at first I didn't believe him. I was like, yeah, you're ridiculous. Um, so was this not on your radar at all? This was not either. in my radar at all, ever. Like never furthest thing from it. Because like I said, I believed the stereotype that ADHD was, you know, that hyperactive kid. And I was never that. I could sit still in class. I didn't have those problems. But then I started reading about it and I took the online test and pretty much every online test, my question was yes, or my answer was yes to just about every question. And so I went to an online doctor and he, I told him, you know, why I thought I had ADHD and told him pretty much my life story. And he's like, yeah, I think you're right. And so he started me on a non-stimulant medication. And at the same time, I'm still not believing it. I start, you know, feeling better on this medication and like actually able to start remembering things and focusing at work. And at that point, I'm thinking, okay, maybe there is something to it. But at the same time, I'm still in denial. So why, I goes, why were you in denial? A curiosity, you know, before you knew about ADHD, what was your feeling about it? Why would you not want to imagine having it? Because if that was the explanation, and this is something I still struggle with, then why didn't anybody know? Why didn't anybody find out sooner? Why did nobody help me when I needed it? And you that, mean when you were a child? Right. Because now we know so much more about it and there's so much more awareness. But it's irrational because I know then it wasn't as talked about as it is now. My rational brain knows why. But in my heart, it just, it was really hard to accept at first. And it took three doctors, three different doctors telling me that, yes, I do, before I finally accepted it as yes. Hmm. It's an interesting element of your story because it sounds like the validation of having an actual diagnosable difference rather than providing you with a sense of relief or refuge initially was proof of something about your value or how people cared about you. Yeah, I mean, I guess... I always, I was just stuck that I was broken, that I felt broken. So I was broken and I just felt that to my core. And then this is basically saying, no, you're not what you believed you were your whole life. You're just different and that's okay. And that was really hard to accept after believing one way your whole life. I went through pretty much a grief process after I was diagnosed because I was in denial. And then I was angry with all the teachers I ever had and all the doctors I ever had and my family for not knowing, even if it was an irrational anger, I was mad at myself for not knowing. 
did you feel like you had missed out on something? Yeah. I, and that's the other thing is like, I was sad. I was very sad. And even on, you know, I was depressed because then you start, you know, I also have OCD and I get stuck in these thoughts and it just kept, it's the, the what ifs or what could have been. If somebody had diagnosed this earlier, would I have struggled so much in college? It took me 10 years to get my undergraduate degree because I had had a really hard start and ended up being put on probation my freshman year, having to take a year off. And then I went back and then I had to take more time off. And and when I finally did decide to go back and be hard at it, I was only taking one to two classes a semester. And I had switched my major a couple of times, like six. So, (laughs) you know, I'm taking classes I didn't need. And then by the time I finally had everything, it was 10 years from the time I graduated high school. And then I went on to my master's. Do you feel like the people who've known you for a long time are regretful about not having helped you with this? Well, my family doesn't necessarily believe it, that anything's wrong with me or that I have it. So I think it's not talked about really. Often it's, if there's a genetic component with ADHD or maybe always. Right. Do Does anyone in your family, not your the family you've begun, but in your your parents or siblings or even aunts have it as far as you know? Not diagnosed. Uh-huh. I suspect, but not diagnosed. My grandmother and I have actually talked about it. Do you uh, ever kind of secretly diagnose people in your head? Yeah. Uh, occasionally, but I try not to really. I mean, I worry about my kids and my husband says I project and I just want them to be, but it, it's really, I don't, I don't, if they weren't, that would make me the happiest in the entire world. If they didn't have it, I just, I have a fear and I don't want them to suffer or have the same problems that I did. Is your husband's approach to you different now that you are being treated for it? He's been a bit more patient and understanding. There's, we still have problems, obviously, but, you know, we're working on it. It's hard mm-hmm. on him because he feels like he has to manage us and me because I forget so much. I'm, I'll be late a lot. But since diagnosis and I'm still in the process of trying to find like the best medication for me, but I've, we've, I've put in place some structures that have helped me a lot, like using my Google calendar and then also using a bullet journal. So I'm, I'm got everything written down. So I'm not missing things like I used to. He's not having to constantly remind me as much as he used to. Was it hard at work for you prior to your diagnosis? Did you, how did you manage your job when you had this kind of, I guess, difference? Because I'm good at it. <laughs> it's just, it comes naturally to me. So I don't have to work as hard at it. But at the same time, there would be days I would sit at work and get no real 
work accomplished. But then there would be other days where I could get a whole day, a whole week's worth of work done in one day. Do you think a lot of people have ADHD? Um, they say it's like 3% of the population, 3 to 4%. So that's a lot. Yeah. And then autistic people, they say it's about 50% of people with autism also have ADHD. The prison population, um, especially drug offenders, they think there is a high correlation of ADHD because what's been found is what a lot of people are doing is they're turning to cocaine or meth as a method of coping and self-medicating because they don't know that they have this problem. And so a lot of times what's happening, especially right now, people assume that the stimulant medications that are used for ADHD, like the Adderall and Ritalin, they think people are abusing them. But what they don't understand is that once even people who are addicted to drugs, if they have ADHD, most of the time, if they're properly medicated and doing their learning their skills and their tools to help them through their life, because medication isn't the answer. It's, it's like a part of it. It's a help, but it doesn't cure anything. It doesn't solve everything. But once people are properly treated, they're not turning back to the drugs. Is that something about the stimulation needed for the brain? It's about the stimulation needed for the brain. It's about dealing with all of the failures that you have from having ADHD, all of the letting people down your entire life. So coping and numbing yourself from those things. Ah, it's so a combination. There's an, experience. there's an experience in ADHD of, I think what you're saying is feeling like you don't match up and that you keep doing things wrong. Right. So there's this sort of like fear of failure. Fear of failure, but also because we fail so much that we feel like failures or we let people down. And, we, and most of the time we're harder on ourselves than anybody else. So what's your advice for people who suspect or know that someone they love, child, friend, adult, has ADHD? What's a good way to support them? To read and learn about it because there's an infograph and I'll send you the link to it. And it's called the ADHD iceberg. So what most people see is the hyperactivity, the impulsivity, or the inattentiveness. Those are what are like at the surface. And then below that is just a hundred different symptoms that most people don't even think about. We have sleep problems. We have problems with the amount of energy our brain expenses because our brain works so much harder that by the end of the day, we don't have energy to do anything else. So we get called lazy. Um, patience is very important. I know that the loved ones of us get very frustrated and rightfully so because, you know, a lot of times the problems with ADHD is blurting out 
talking over people. People don't think we listen because we fidget or look somewhere else. Um, I'm laughing because I have personal experience in my family with that. Yeah. And, um, you know, just not making it to places on time, forgetting appointments, going to the grocery store and just forgetting things. And people take it personally, but it's not. And it's not that we don't care. It's not that it's not important. It's that literally it can fly in your head and be there and two seconds later be gone. I can go to the store with a grocery list in front of me and mark things off as I go and have one thing left and forget that one thing. And it's not because that one thing wasn't important. It's because something else happened and now that's out of my head. So understanding that, that it's not something personal against you or disrespectful towards you as the non-ADHD person, that's very important, I think, to both people, that there's that understanding. And then structure is important too. So if you're the non-ADHD partner, helping that ADHD person or friend or family member with structure is important too. And I think it makes both people's lives easier. And that's something that we're working on at home right now. Do you think there are things people who are living or close to an ADHD person should not do? Yeah. um, Yelling doesn't work. Negativity doesn't work. So patience is important and not flying off the handle because we know that we've disappointed you and we're going to be even harder on ourselves. I'm not saying it's okay. It's not an excuse, but you know, it's also not intentional to hurt you. Right. And you're not, it's not about slacking or trying to do less work, which is, it could be a frustrating, a frustrating relationship perhaps for a partner. Yeah. It can be very frustrating. I don't know how old your children are. Do they approach you with an understanding of ADHD and respect for you? Uh, They don't really understand it yet. Mm -hmm. My daughters know that I forget things. Mm -hmm. Mommy forgets things a lot, which makes me sad that that's, you know, what they know. But it's my reality and I got to deal with it. I got to work hard and use tools and constantly try and figure out new ways so that I'm not forgetting things and then I can show up and be there and not have that what they remember. When you said before that um, you you worried about your children maybe having it or you're not sure and and my first instinct was ADHD is solvable. It's, you know, there is medicine and, you know, Um, But I think I have a better understanding now from what you're saying that it's not always easy to solve. No. And that's, I think, another myth that some people have is that, you know, once you're on the medication, it's supposed to make all the symptoms go away. And it doesn't. It absolutely does not. All it does is make it easier for you to focus on things. And so you can level the playing field. So... These days, do you feel like you fit in? Do you still feel broken? Um, 
sometimes, but not like I used to because so much of what I was feeling is explained by the ADHD. I read a couple of really great books, one by Russell Barkley called Taking Charge of Adult ADHD, and then another one um, called Driven to Distraction by Dr. Hallowell. Mm -hmm. And the first one is more of, you know, it's kind of a mix between an informational book and a workbook. So as you go through it, you know, it's asking you to fill out things as they pertain to you. So you're filling out your symptoms and how they affect you at work and you're putting down your real life experiences and it walks through the symptoms and how they show up in your life. And then the second, the driven to distraction, Dr. Hallowell basically gives some of his patients discussion with their permission. And I think the first, the very first patient story I read, and I think it was maybe 10 pages into the book, I started crying because that was me. And then reading that and seeing that you're not alone is just, I mean, I can't even explain it. It's amazing. Yeah. It's a, an interesting phenomenon that so many people can have it. And luckily it's becoming more known now, but that it can be so isolating. It's even very though isolating. so many people have it. Well, there's such a stigma about it and nobody talks about it. And I also know from, from people that I've met that there's a, a very big impact on the significant other relationship that yep. there's actually books, I think, about what it's like to be the partner of someone with ADHD. Yeah, like 50% and in divorce. Wow. That's very scary. Right. So it, it behooves people to learn more about this. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, it does. What would you say to parents who suspect their kids might have ADHD? Um, I don't know. Talk to the teachers. See what's going on. Talk to the doctors. I wouldn't, if it's not affecting them in school, I'd say just kind of maybe wait a little while. It's not something, medication is not something anybody wants to take. I'm an advocate for it just because I think the evidence, if you research it, shows that medication can be very helpful. It's changed people's lives, but it's not the only thing. And there are people that can't even take it for numerous reasons. So if you do suspect, try building some structures into their daily routines to see if it helps. Um, read up on it. And if things are evident in multiple areas of their lives, at home, at work, at school, whatever, depending on how old they are, then you could always talk to a psychiatrist or a so clinical social worker or a psychologist and just, you know, find out some information. I don't know when a good age is to get tested. I really, I, I can't talk on that, but, you know, it doesn't hurt to talk to somebody and ask advice. Jeanette, if, um, to learn more about you and your podcast, where can we go? Okay. So the podcast is excuse my ADHD. It's pretty much just my story 
of my struggles with ADHD. Um, you can find it pretty much anywhere you podcast. So Google, Apple, Stitcher, um, it's pretty much everywhere. It's on Alexa. I can't think of all the places as it is, but it's everywhere. Um, my website is www.excusemyadhd.com. Um, I have social media accounts. I can give you all of the links to that for your show notes if you want. Yep. That would be great. Yeah. Um, thank you very much for spending the time with me today, Jeanette. No, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to And Then Everything Changed. For more information on this episode, photos, community discussion, and other episodes, please visit atecpodcast.com. You can also find And Then Everything Changed on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And if you like this podcast, please remember to subscribe, rate, and review. Thanks for listening.